0: Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. In this episode, we hear about some incredible things that flying can expose a pilot to, and we also learn about getting into aerobatics and hygiene maneuvers.
1: I've been around aviation my whole life. I built countless model airplanes when I was younger, and I always thought I'd go in the air force. And um, but for a lot of a lot of reasons that aren't relevant anymore, I did not. And uh, then I got busy with a family, and aviation kind of faded into the background. And until we relocated from. The state of Oregon, where I spent most of my adult life. Moved to Tampa, Florida, and as luck would have it, right across the street from a, a local airport downtown called Peter O'Knight. And I watched the student pilots fly around there a lot. I had uh, several friends who are pilots who were trying to encourage me to buy my own airplane, buy a little trainer, a Cessna 150, and I could use that to train. And then when I wanted to, I could sell it and um, basically, not have much of a cost involved. As it turns out, my neighbor was a retired Air Force pilot. He offered to, if I got the airplane, he said he'd teach me to fly. So I did, and he did. We flew all over the place, and uh, I got some exceptionally good training. He he knew what he was doing. So, but I got a late start in it. I was uh, middle aged. I was 45 when I started and just took to it easily. I knew I could, I knew I would. I read a little book one time when I was a kid called Eight Hours to Solo. And I was sure at the end of reading that book that I could fly an airplane. And as luck would have it, I, I ended up at the EAA Foundation in Oshkosh one winter. They have a library of all the aviation publications that they, that they know of. And so I looked up that, that old book, and they had it, Eight Hours to Solo. And I, uh, it only took a few minutes to reread it. And looking back, I realized that I probably would have had a little trouble flying the airplane after reading that book. It's not, I wasn't quite as accomplished as I thought I was. But I did, I did learn to fly in, uh, in the mid-'90s, early-'90s, rather. I up, flew up to uh, Connecticut. Connecticut to buy the air, to buy an airplane with my instructor. And we did, we flew back from Connecticut to Tampa, Florida. Took a, uh, We took a couple of days to fly back and did a lot of training along the way. It was just, that was my long cross country. You have to have a long cross country for that. So at any rate, um, I flew that airplane for quite a while. And uh, as a matter of fact, I flew it to the Bahamas on uh, several occasions. i Pretty much landed on every airport in the Bahamas, just about with that airplane. One of the most amazing things about water is that if you're if there's no wind and there's no waves, and you're flying over the water at a low altitude, it doesn't count if you're at 30,000 feet. But if you're, say, at 500 or 1,000 feet, you look down at the water, you cannot see the surface of the water when you look at it. If there's no ripples, there's nothing to break that that uh, plane. So you can't see the surface of the water. And as a matter of fact, that is, a, that is a real issue when learning to fly a float plane, for example, because you have to land on the water. And if you can't tell where the surface of the water is, it can be extremely dangerous. You fly right into the water without knowing it. And that's happened on more occasions than you probably care to know about. At any rate, um, flying over in the Bahamas, I, I mean, that's just an, an amazing, ex- wonderful experience. Very friendly people and very very accommodating, and, and the scenery is unmatched. The water's crystal clear, and if, if you happen to be fortunate enough to fly over uh, the water when it's real, real still early in the morning, uh, you'll see that there's no ripples. doesn't happen very often. But uh, flying around doing a little sightseeing, we flew over a, a little a bay area where there was, oh, I'd say six or eight boats in the bay, and you could not tell the, where the waterline was. You couldn't tell that there was water there. You could see the boats, but you couldn't see the water. And what you could see was their anchor line going down to the bottom of the water, but it appeared as if the boats were suspended on the anchor line. Just a little curved line, like you'd expect from the anchor going down, and it looked like the, the boats were s- stuck up on a flagpole, a curved flagpole. The most amazing thing, the most remarkable illusion I could have, I've ever seen. So that's kind of my, my one experience in something really, really different like that but a lot of there are a lot of things in it that you have uh, exposure to in an airplane that you don't otherwise you see rainbows that go full circle not just half ground to ground and you'll see them every time if you happen to be above a cloud layer and there's sun shining down in the right conditions you'll see a big round rainbow very vivid colors very bright
0: After flying for some time, our storyteller got into aerobatics as a way of furthering his flying skills. When he started, he had no intentions of competing, but he eventually did.
1: I've competed in uh, aerobatic competition, which is similar to ice skating in some ways. You you, You have a group of folks on the ground who are watching you and grading how you're doing. They grade whether you're your verticals are really vertical, and they're up or down. Your 45-degree lines are really 45 degrees, and it's all subjective. But so is ice skating, and the judging of that. So there's a, there are a lot of similarities. It's all based on precision and control. When I when I first started with aerobatics, I thought, well, I just do this for the enjoyment, and I got hooked into competition. And once I was in the competition, I thought, well, I only want to go to intermediate. All the, the more advanced stuff looked too strenuous or violent. But you just go along, and uh, pretty soon it doesn't look quite so violent. And you get hooked into it. And then when I stopped competing, uh, which was just last year, I did my last contest, uh, I was flying in at the unlimited level. I've flown, flown unlimited. I've flown... At the national championships, several, several years in a row, maybe eight or eight or nine years in a row, but now it doesn't hold quite the quite the mystery that it did when I got started. And I also I found out that if I practice enough to be competitive, which I can do, I am for better or for worse. I'm I'm a pretty competitive person. So what happens is that uh, if I get going and start practicing to be in a contest, it doesn't take long before my back starts to hurt, and it takes the fun out of it and it takes the motivation out of it so i don't i don't compete anymore so that's why i don't compete
0: today our storyteller owns a four hundred horsepower sukoi model thirty one which he also used to compete in
1: it's made of uh the wings are all carbon fiber, and there's another another composite material that slips my mind this, the metal part of the airplane is a chrome vanadium steel, which is very difficult to come by in the United States, but very plentiful in the, in Russia. So it's a stainless, very strong stainless steel. The only thing that's chrome vanadium is the frame of the airplane, and the it has a carbon fiber shell around it for the fuselage. And all the other metal in the airplane the landing gear and the exhaust system and the tail wheel and all the other metal parts are titanium which is extremely light and stronger than steel so it makes a very strong airplane the engines a uh, an M14 PF model which is 400 horsepower it's a radial engine the cylinders are go around on a uh, they're aligned they don't move. They they're aligned in a in a circle. And there's nine cylinders. It's like I say, it's 400 horsepower. And the airplane itself is rated at plus or minus 12 g's. I happen to know the some of the folks that were involved in the airplane's design and uh, manufacture when it was built in Russia. And they I know they tested the airplane to destruction. They tested the wings, for example, and the wings were tested to 26 Gs, and they, they applied that 26 Gs of some sort of jig that they use, and the wing cracked, but it didn't break. So they, it cracked, and they released the pressure. Then they reapply the pressure, and they got two and a half Gs on it again before it completely failed. So the only way to hurt that airplane is to hit the ground cannot break it. The engine mount is in the accessories or something that also have to be subjected to a, a G test because it doesn't do much good if your if your airplane is good to 24Gs but you pull 10Gs and the engine falls off. It's so not would not be a good thing. So they they put the engine and the and the engine mount on a fixture and tested that and I think uh Victor said the the fixture that they were using broke. The mount didn't break. Nothing happened, but the fixture they were using broke at like 24 Gs. So they usually cut the Gs in half, and when they give it a rating and say, well, it was 24 Gs, so it'll be a 12 G rating. So it's plus or minus 12 Gs. Uh, routinely when I fly, I, I don't know what which maneuvers cause the, uh, the high G's, but when I get out of the airplane, there's always between 8 and 10 positive G's and minus 5 to minus 6. Five and a half is kind of my personal maximum is for the negative G's because that's extremely uncomfortable. A Positive G is when the, the blood is trying to be forced to your feet. A negative G is when you're upside down or you're doing something that forces the blood to your head you know they call a positive g loss of consciousness a blackout and a negative g a red out presumably because your the blood's being forced to your to your brain and your eyes well thing is you don't lose consciousness your you may get a little too much blood in your eyes they're, they don't pop by the way <laughs> they feel like they're going to but they don't pop but you don't lose consciousness it's it's just really uncomfortable.
0: Pete Eslick still enjoys flying his Sukhoi for fun, and aviation is one of Pete's top hobbies that keeps him busy. Another one of which is music, and actually the song that you're listening to right now was played by Pete on his Drobo, which is a brand of resophonic guitars that Pete was learning how to play at the time of this interview. More information and pictures related to the story can be found in the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. Special thanks goes out to Megan Brock, our recording and interviewing assistant. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released. And you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that it's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.